Today on CityCast Boise, it's Friday and Frankie's with me to help sort through the week's news. We're talking juror mental health in the Vallow trial, groundbreaking for the new interfaith sanctuary. Plus, it's morale season, baby. It's Friday, April 21st. I'm Emma Arnold, and this is what Boise's talking about. Frankie. Hey, Emma. Happy Friday. Yeah, here we are. <laughs> it was a, a little quieter of a week than we have been having, which was a, which was nice, a relief. Yeah, the weather was the thing that was most exciting, as it has been lately. So, yeah. Well, I hate to start with this, uh, but let's go ahead and get into it because it's been all over and everybody's it's on everybody's mind and everybody's talking about it. Let's talk about the Vallow trial a lot happened this week, and I don't really want to get super into the weeds. We talked about, you know, it's such an incredibly complicated trial. Uh, but let's go through some, like, general updates. Who testified this week? Yeah, so complicated, so sad. We'll link to uh, a really great conversation we had with uh, one of our friends at KTVB who's covering this closely. But, um, yeah, just just an overview. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of people testify in the last couple weeks since the trial's really begun in earnest. One of the big witnesses was a Rexburg detective who was the one who found uh, J.J. Vallow and Tylee Ryan's bodies in the backyard of Chad Daybell, Chad Daybell being the husband of uh, of uh, Lori Vallow um, at the time of uh, the kid's disappearance. And um, that, of course, was really tough tough stuff that uh, the jury had to hear. We can talk about that more. We've also heard from um, Colby Ryan, who is Lori Vallow's only remaining uh, child, who was older than both Tylee and JJ, um, and who had very emotional testimony about his siblings and his mom, and, uh, you know, was choking up on the stand, and, um, you know, kind of gave his mom a pointed look uh, uh, as Alexandra Duggan from KTVB reported in her coverage um, after he got off the stand earlier this week. So as well as um, friends of Lori Vallow uh, involved in the very extreme LDS uh, version of their faith that, of course, is very prominent and really important in this criminal case. Yeah. And we finally kind of got some clarification on Chad and Lori's religious beliefs. And that was rough to hear, to, yeah. to read. It, it was some pretty intense stuff. Yeah. We've heard about how they had beliefs around demons, that demons were taking over the bodies of humans and including people in their family. So um, JJ and and Tylee specifically, um, as well as uh, Charles Vallow, a previous husband of Lori Vallow, who mysteriously, but maybe not so mysteriously, ended up being shot by Lori Vallow's now-deceased brother in a self-defense case in Arizona. Um, that came up as well. And yeah, this very extreme version of the LDS faith and uh, Chad Daybell being um, somebody who lived in Rexburg in eastern Idaho for many years and was participating, an active participant in uh, going to uh, temple and uh, participating in the church there. And then his views became more extreme. 
He met Lori somewhere along the way. Her and her views uh, became particularly extreme as well. And they that is directly connected to uh, the very tragic death of these uh, children, at least allegedly, you know, as the prosecutors are trying to make this case that their religious views led them to uh, kill these children. Yeah. And, you know, you got a question on Twitter from a listener, and it was something actually I've been wondering a lot about, too, that sort of relates back to um, the way these children were killed. And I'm so glad she asked it. Uh, what what did she say exactly? Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Leanne, uh, who messaged me on Twitter, uh, asked about Basically, you know, these jurors are having to see really horrific, horrific uh, photos and hear uh, testimony and statements from people like that Rexburg investigator and others about, um, you know, the remains that were found in Chad Daybell's backyard. And so basically the question is, you know, do courts offer counseling to jurors after their service is complete? You know, this is, it took uh, a full week for the court to find uh, 12 jurors and and six alternates. Uh, this case is going to go for, you know, maybe eight, 12 weeks. So it's already a very long personal commitment. But then on top of that, uh, you're witnessing just horrific, horrific things that nobody should have to see. And they're not asking for it. You know, they they didn't become police. Uh, they're, they're not going into a line of work that you should at least be aware that you're going to see that kind of stuff. Right. And so um, Leanne asked a great question. And I actually pinged, uh, again, Alex Duggan from KTVB, who's really following this case very closely. And she said that, yes, in fact, there is um, some support uh, that can come specifically that Ada County, it depends on the situation, but that counseling is available to jurors in a number of cases there, and there would be reimbursement potentially, kind of depends on the situation. But I don't know, I guess, I hope I hope these jurors know that. I hope the county is letting them know so that whenever this case concludes, if they need uh, help, you know, they can seek it. That's so good to hear because I, I couldn't stop thinking about, you know, these are just regular people, you know, these are just people that are like, yeah, I'll do my civic duty. Sure. I'll be a part of this. And then, you know, you, you get pulled in and you're like, oh, for like a traffic case. And it's like right, one of the right. most horrific cases we've ever had in Idaho. So, right. And of course, finding, yeah, finding jurors who uh, didn't already have an opinion about the the yeah. story that's so, you know, publicized and all of that. But, uh, you know, there's a reason why there's no cameras in the courtroom. Um, we're getting some audio. And then, of course, reporters like uh, Alexandra from uh, KGVB, Alex uh, Brizzy, I think is how you say her name for the Idaho Statesman. She's doing amazing uh, work as well. And we'll link to a couple of their uh, extrapolations. I shout out also the reporters. Yes, we go into this line of work knowing what we could see, but it's also traumatic for the people reporting on it too, or it can be. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, you know, we'll be continuing to follow this and continuing to hope that the people following it more closely get, you know, get some therapy and get some help yeah. and some support because it's a really rough, rough one. <laughs> We do get to move on to something that is really fun and I'm excited about. It's morel season, which is my favorite. Frankie, have you ever gone morel hunting? No, I've always wanted to go. I can't wait to hear more about this experience. And yeah, it sounds like, uh, where is it exactly? There's a big uh, morel, well, what, what they think will be a big morel crop. Is that 
near your old neck of the woods, near Salmon, right? Yeah, near my hometown, near Salmon, there was the Moose Fire last year, which was huge and very devastating. Uh, but the only really up the, one of the upsides <laughs> right. to a fire is that the next year there's going to be a, usually a ton of morels. So the Salmon Chalice Forest Service is preparing for what they're assuming is going to be a ton of people coming up to morel hunt. And I've been doing it since I was a kid. Like, we always went every single year. It's one of wow. my favorite things. It's it's really easy, really simple if people are trying to get into it. Um, it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, you should go. We should, we should make a weekend of it. Okay. Well, what do we need? Do we need a permit? Is that a thing you need? So if you're just, if you're just gathering like, you know, a regular, you know, individual size, you know, you're just going out and you're like one person, you're just getting your family some mushrooms. You don't need a permit. If you're getting a bunch, if you're getting over five gallons, you do need to get one of the uh, either personal free or personal paid permits. And uh, it depends, honestly, like county to county. If you're doing it, like if you're getting a lot of morels, you have to get like a commercial. Some places don't even allow you to do that. So you do have to get like a commercial permit. Okay. So if I was, if I was going to gather, then I'm going to go them at the farmer's market. I'd probably yes. need that. But if I'm just getting them to make dinner that night or whatever, not yeah. so much. Yeah. No, you don't need a permit for that. You can just go out. And uh, usually the best time to go is like April to early June. But this year, because it's been so cool and we've gotten so much snow, my guess is it'll probably be like May to late June. Okay. Um, and especially in those higher elevations, it could be even later because we have so much snow. Like you really right. need the snow to melt and uh, you need it to be like 50 to 60 degrees ish to like to go and and for them to start popping up. Is the perfect morale season. Okay. I would say probably should bring some bear spray, right? Because you're out. I mean, you just be aware <laughs> of your surroundings, whatever yeah, you're doing, sure. hiking in the backcountry. That's normal, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 You yeah. Do all those normal be things. Be careful. After a burn, yeah. you know, it's muddy. It's slippery. Totally. Um, there's fallen logs. There's a lot of hazards and stuff out there. Also, the biggest thing when you're out morel hunting is that you never, ever, ever, ever eat a mushroom that you aren't 100% mm. sure you can positively identify. And there are false morels. So you really do like, oh, if boy. it's your first time, you really, it's really helpful to like pull up a guide, really make sure like that those ridges and stuff are in the right spot um, and really pay attention to that. And like the best places to go, forests, you know, you're looking after a fire. The moose fire is going to be great for that. But really anywhere. And that's the fun thing about morels is like they could be anywhere. They could be in your backyard. You have wow. no idea. Like really, they're probably not down here in the valley so much. You do need to get up into those conifer forests. But um, yeah, you just kind of never really know where they could be. Oh, that sounds so cool. Okay. Yeah, I definitely need to come with you to make sure that I don't accidentally <laughs> pick the wrong kind of morel. Um, what do you make with your morels? What's something that you've made in the past after hunting? You know, you can make you can make a lot of stuff. You can put them in sauces. I know, you know, people sometimes put them in like lasagnas and stuff like that. I always feel like they're so precious. They're right. so, you know, they're like gold, really. Yeah. And so the way I like to do them is uh, I soak them when I get home. I soak them in some salt water for about 15 minutes, pull them out, dry them off really, really, really well. And then my favorite thing to do is just bread them with a little bit of salt and flour and then mm. fry them and then just put a little salt on them. And they're so, I mean, they're like candy. Like when I would make them, the kids would stand there and then like the second they come out of the pan, they'd be, you know, eating them. And we never have leftovers. If you have leftovers, you they'll keep in the fridge for a few days. But um, the really important thing is do not put them in plastic when you gather them. It's oh, okay. really important to put them in a paper bag or a little box. Um, you don't want to put them just like regular mushrooms. You don't want to put them in plastic. They'll get slimy and disgusting. And as far as harvesting goes, there's some really good like uh, best practices. Like you don't ever want to take 
a morel that's smaller than your thumb. This is what I was taught as a kid mm, anyway. Okay. Uh, don't take morels that are smaller than your thumb. You're you're waiting for like these mature mushrooms to come up. And what I was always taught was you only take half. You only take half of the mushrooms um, because you want that to spread. You want the the yeah. mycelia Spores, to be able to. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So you only take half of what you find, which can be really frustrating if you find four mushrooms the whole time you've been hiking around. It's very tempting to be like, I'm taking all four of these, but <laughs> take two. I know it's hard. Hopefully you find, find a bunch, but you don't always. Um, and then also a big, big one is you don't want to pull them out of the ground. Mm. You always want to slice them with a knife. Um, that preserves the like mycelia roots uh, of the fungus, and that's better for it. And also, it'll be better, like it's cleaner. You don't want a bunch of mud and dirt all over your mushroom. So if you just slice it, you're not going to get all that dirt and stuff too. Nice. Okay. Yeah. As always, Emma, you've got the best backcountry. <laughs> uh, leave no trace. You know, don't take everything you could kind of advice, which I think we need to be reminded of. Uh, yeah. Especially, yeah. Especially folks who are maybe new to new to Idaho need to know the etiquette a little bit. I think that's that's really good to hear. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if uh, if you are somebody who this is your first time and you've never, ever done this before, I really, really recommend joining the Southern Idaho Mycological Association. Other, It's also called SEMA um, at IdahoMushroomClub.org. And that is, uh, we've been members for about 15 years. My oldest, when he was about five, forced us to join the Mushroom Club because he was obsessed oh. with har- har- foraging <laughs> mushrooms. And um, they do forays. They do like these things where you go out with them and they will teach you how to gather mushrooms. They will show you how to identify mushrooms, do spore prints, all the things. And it's also just really, really fun. They just hike together. It's a really good group of people. That's so sweet. I just love the symbolism too of morels. Like they, you know, come up after a fire, all yeah. of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wonder if the intrigue around morels will be higher this year after The Last of Us. <laughs> or if people will be like, no, I don't want to eat mushrooms. Like, I don't mess with that. I don't mess with those. Yeah, good call. I don't know. <laughs> okay, we're going. We're going to go. Let's head up to Salmon. That sounds happen. perfect. Yay. <laughs> well, and it's fun. I feel like we did so many heavy legislative uh, weekly roundups, but we got to talk morels on this one, and we get to talk about some really good news, which I'm so, so happy about. Interface Sanctuary broke ground on the new facility. Yes. So this has been a very, very, very long time coming for this nonprofit, um, Interfaith Sanctuary, which is uh, the only low barrier uh, shelter in the Boise area. Um, And they've been wanting to open this new facility on State Street that's like four times the size of the current one in downtown. um, And it will serve all kinds of people, including medically fragile uh, folks experiencing homelessness. It'll also be open during the day, which is unusual. Like people can stay there during the day. So in the middle of, you know, 109 degree weather in Boise, they won't have to go out into the streets. They can stay in the air conditioning in the winter. They can stay in when it's really cold during the day as well. Um, And then there'll be like mental health services and, uh, you know, a library for kids and like real like like a playground kind of in essence, like this nice back, you know, nice green space outdoors because it's that big that they can have it. It's a long time coming and it didn't come without a lot of pushback and a lot of uh, back and forth. So uh, the Neighborhood Association, um, Veterans Park Neighborhood Association, you know, put a pretty big fight and uh, against the shelter um, and the city council. It was last spring officially said 
okay, with all of these uh, new stipulations, yes, you can open the shelter interfaith, but here it is, it's been like a full year until they're actually able to just break ground. So as far as when it's open, you know, it'll be several months from now probably, um, but the symbolism of the groundbreaking this week is huge. It's, it's huge. Well, it's very exciting. I read in the Idaho Press article, it says it's not fully assured, like it's not 100% right now. There's still this petition for judicial review that the Veterans Park Neighborhood Association is pursuing. Yep. But the breaking of the ground, it, it's just, it's very symbolic and it's, you know, optimistic. And it, it's, it is looking good, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm not a lawyer, so I can't give a full accounting of what I think might happen. But it seems like momentum is in favor of interfaith Although momentum has been very slow, like I said, I mean, they got approval like a full year ago and only now are actually just even breaking ground. So it's still taking a long time. They wanted to be open over the winter in the new space. We had a really harsh winter. We're still experiencing some harsh winters here in April. Um, so, you know, it's uh, it's been a long time coming. And I guess we'll, we'll keep watching to see if that legal challenge mounts to anything. Um, but the fact that the, you know, it went through such a rigorous process, like I I watched a lot of those hearings, uh, the city council planning zoning, and it's, you know, they went through it and uh, Interfaith agreed to a lot of things that they didn't want to agree to originally and a lot of stipulations. So it seems as though that there was enough of a compromise there, whether or not the Veterans Park Neighborhood Association is happy with that, you know, obviously not so much. Um, but there was a lot of concessions that Interfaith made in order to get that approval last year. Well, uh, we're excited for our friends at Interfaith uh, Sanctuary and um, can't wait to see the facility done and, and you know, people moving into there and being able to stay during the day. Like you said, that's such a huge, huge piece of that. So congrats to them. And that's it, Frankie. I think I think yeah. we've rounded up some news. And uh, thanks for helping me, helping me check everything out this week, as always. And I'll see you next Friday. Okay. Can't wait. Bye, Emma. That's all for today here on CityCast Boise. The show is produced by Frankie Barnhill, Evelyn Avitia, and me, Emma Arnold. Blake Hunter writes our Hey Boise newsletter, and our music is by Up Is The Down Is The. If you enjoyed our show today, leave us a review. It helps other people find us. We'll be back Monday with more stories from around the city. And don't forget to grab your tickets for my album release party, April 28th at Visual Arts Collective. See you around, Boise. Boise.